Hi, I'm Dr. Will Bostock from Cambridge Progressive Medicine. This podcast aims to assist you in taking control of your own health, well-being and happiness using a combination of Western medicine, psychotherapy, thought work and lifestyle. The podcasts are designed to be used in conjunction with working face-to-face with me, but I've made them freely available and you're welcome to listen to them independently. And if you do, I hope you find them helpful. If you would like to work directly with me, you can visit my website at www.cambridgeprogressivemedicine.com. Hello, and welcome back. I know it's been some time since I've produced an episode for this podcast. It has certainly been a challenging year, and I'm sure that many of you, like me, have had your plans somewhat derailed. It's now over a year since I released a brief episode promising that we'd be doing some work on pain. And I think that maybe after such a long break, it is time that we got started on the advanced class. As I mentioned last time, pain is a difficult issue, both physically and emotionally. It is also extremely complex and poorly understood by both the medical profession and the general public. There is an increasing body of evidence that suggests that a better understanding of pain, what it is and how it manifests, can directly and indirectly help in the management of pain. This is not surprising. Understanding something helps us find solutions. But this doesn't just mean understanding by scientists and professors of pain medicine. In order to impact pain, it implies a better understanding by all of us, including those who are affected by pain. There have been some recent advances in research into the neurobiological mechanisms that are responsible for pain. However, Neuroscience that pushes the limits of human understanding will always stray into the fields of psychology, philosophy and even theology. This is not necessarily a bad thing and I hope you will see how these disciplines might have a valid role to play not instead of but as an adjunct to medical approaches. I'm going to try to explore some of these advances and concepts of pain drawing on all disciplines available to us. As a GP, I'm a generalist, and I don't pretend to be a neuroscientist or a pain expert. The neurobiology presented here is perhaps a lay interpretation. It is how I find it helpful to interpret, understand and explain this work. It is not designed as an academic thesis. If you're interested in the science behind these ideas, as always, I will post some links on my website. Let's start at the very beginning and ask, what is pain? We often think of pain as a disease, as something that has gone wrong. But this isn't quite right. Pain itself is a normal part of the functioning of humans. In the first year of medical school, they don't teach you about any diseases at all. Instead, they teach you about how the body works. They teach anatomy and physiology. They teach you what goes on in the body when it's working well. 
If we want to understand how something has gone wrong, we first need to understand how it's meant to function. Pain is a warning system. It is there to protect us from harm and to keep us healthy and safe. When this system is working correctly, pain is our friend and not our enemy. It prevents us from injuring ourselves. We will instantly drop a hot pan because of the pain, preventing burns to our hands. When we are injured, it causes us to rest and allow our bodies to heal. If we were unable to feel pain, we would not be very healthy. In the disease leprosy, the disease itself doesn't cause damage to the limbs. Leprosy causes loss of sensation, which then in turn results in frequent injuries like burns or cuts, because people have lost their natural warning system. Because the primary function of pain is to warn us of danger and to protect us from harm, the mechanisms that produce pain are more complex than simple cause and effect pathways resulting from injury in the body. Our brains use pain to alter our behaviour based on calculations of what will ensure our survival. This is not only dependent on the type of injury, but also on context. The intensity of pain we experience is therefore not just related to the severity of the injury itself, but also on the situation. The classic example of this is that if you were to twist your ankle chasing a deer, you are likely to feel pain. Your brain wants you to rest to avoid any further injury. But if you were to twist your ankle running away from a lion, it is unlikely you would feel any immediate pain. Your survival would depend on you being able to carry on running, and so the brain will judge that it is not in your best interests to make you feel pain. When you twist your ankle, the injury triggers pain receptors in the tissue, which in turn send a pain signal up sensory nerves in the spinal cord and into the brain. But this signal is not the pain itself. The brain must interpret the stimulus to decide how dangerous it thinks the situation is, and the brain then generates the amount of pain it thinks is appropriate to the perceived level of danger. This calculation will take into account many external factors, not necessarily directly related to the initial signal. More than this, if the brain believes that you're in danger, it may make you feel pain, even in the absence of any injury to the body at all. There was a great demonstration of this in a case report that appeared in the British Medical Journal in 1995. It reported the case of a 29-year-old builder who presented to A&E after having jumped down onto a 15-centimetre nail that had impaled straight through his boot. He was in such agony that in order to remove the boot, he had to be sedated with fentanyl and midazolam, two of the most powerful drugs available in the emergency department. On removing the boot, it was discovered that the nail had passed right between his toes, with absolutely no injury to his foot at all. It is important to understand that he was not imagining the pain. He was not making it up. He genuinely felt the pain. The brain was giving him maximum pain, as it judged it was extremely important to his survival that he shouldn't walk around with a nail through his foot. Given that on the balance of probability, the nail was most likely going through his foot, this seems a sensible approach. 
at least until more information was available. The purpose of this system is to protect us and keep us safe. When it is functioning as it should, pain is always our friend. Of course, I understand that for many people, pain is certainly not a friend. As we discussed the first time we approached this subject on the podcast, chronic pain is one of the hardest and most debilitating conditions I treat. But if pain starts to harm us instead of helping us, for me, this must mean that the pain system itself has malfunctioned. If the brain is giving us pain in situations where our survival and well-being would be better served without pain, then the pain system has gone wrong in some way. I like to compare this to autoimmune diseases, such as rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease. The immune system is designed to protect us and keep us safe, killing off invading bugs and treating infections. But sometimes it can develop a fault and starts attacking healthy tissues and causing us harm. In the same way, when we start to experience pain that is making our lives worse rather than better, because of excessive intensity of pain, or pain that continues for months or even years. This means that there's a problem with the pain warning system. It is designed to help us and not harm us, and if it is harming us, then it must have malfunctioned. This is where things can get a little bit tricky. This concept of a malfunctioning warning system is often misinterpreted. People sometimes understand this as meaning that the pain is in the head, that this brain pain is somehow not real or less legitimate than body pain. This represents a fundamental misunderstanding of the interaction between the world, the human brain and human experiences. It is where neuroscience meets philosophy of mind. These are complex topics but extremely important ones. Strictly speaking, the pain is in the head, in that it's produced by the brain. But this is true of all pain, and in fact, of all human experience. Brain pain is not a fundamentally different type of thing from other forms of pain. This is hard to untangle, but I will try to explain. We may need to go slightly off-piste, but I think it is necessary. So bear with me. We know that all types of pain are generated by the brain. All pain is in the head, because pain is an experience, and experiences are mentally generated. In the same way, all of our senses are generated by the brain, and are therefore in the head. What we see, hear, or smell are projections created by the brain, in response to the external stimuli it receives. The way we see the world around us is not like looking at it through a window. It is more akin to seeing a representation generated by a computer and displayed on a screen. What we see is dependent on the way the brain processes information and what it decides to present to us. Because of this, the experiences of the colour or smell of an object are not the same as the object itself. We can never know if someone else's experience of the colour blue 
is the same as ours. We have no access to the experience their brain conjures when they look at a blue object. The experience they call blue may in fact be the same experience that we call orange. Back in 2015, there was a viral sensation on the internet of a photo of a dress which people either saw as black and blue or white and gold. People argued over which it was and formed into strong camps which some referred to with the hashtag Dressgate. The point is that the particular combination of light waves in the photo caused different people's brains to generate a different experience. Neither is right or wrong. Both experiences are equally legitimate and equally real to the person experiencing them. Because of this system, all of our sensations are dependent on context in the same way that pain is. The brain generates experiences of sight, smell, sound and touch based on what it calculates will be beneficial to show us. There are lots of examples of visual illusions such as the spinning dancer or the rabbit duck image which demonstrate that what we see depends upon the way our brains interpret data to build up a picture or representation of the world. It's worth checking out some of these when thinking about this work. Even if you've seen them before, it's helpful to see them again. They're like cornflakes. You kind of forget how good they are. I'll post some links on my website because I think it's helpful to see this in action. For what it's worth, to me the dress looks white and gold, whilst to my partner, it's black and blue. Context plays a role in all of our perceptions. We will often see what we expect to see. The brain is constantly taking shortcuts, generating information on what it predicts will happen. Because it receives such a huge quantity of data, the brain will process this and decide what it thinks it is most important to present to our awareness. If it didn't, we'd be overwhelmed by information and we wouldn't be able to get anything done. This may involve not registering certain events that it deems to be irrelevant to the situation, or filling in the gaps when information is incomplete. A good demonstration of this is the example of text where all the letters in the middle of each word have been scrambled, leaving only the first and the last in the correct place. We can easily read this text and may not even notice the scrambled words. When we expect to see something, our brain may present us with information, even if it is not really there. And when we do not expect something, we may fail to see it, even if it is right in front of us. Think of the favourite example of the gorilla experiment. It is so well known that I won't go into it here, but if you have never seen it before, go check it out on YouTube. Again, I'll add the links to my website. In 2001, at the University of Bordeaux, a psychology experiment was conducted where wine experts were asked to comment on two wines, one red and the other white. In fact, they were comparing the same wine. The red wine was actually just the white wine dyed red and served at room temperature. All 54 experts were fooled by the experiment and described the red wine as you would expect rich cherry notes and subtle tannins. It wasn't that they were making it up or that they were charlatans. They actually experienced a different taste. 
the brain created a different experience based on its expectation. And it did it universally. All 54 were convinced. This is not just true of visual illusions and psychology experiments. There are lots of examples of the importance of context to our experience in everyday life. Have you ever been working and taken a swig of your coffee when it's gone cold? It tastes disgusting and it makes you gag. But is cold coffee really disgusting? I love iced coffee on a hot summer's day. It tastes disgusting because the brain was expecting it to be hot. It was surprised by it being cold. This surprise, the unknown, is interpreted as danger. Going around drinking unidentified liquids is not normally a good survival strategy. And so the brain made it taste disgusting so that you spat it out. Maybe it also calculated that it didn't want to destroy your laptop, so you managed to spit it back into your cup. But maybe not. This is the nature of all human experience, and is the reason why, philosophically speaking, it is impossible to prove the existence of anything outside of your own consciousness. And it's also why trees falling over in forests with no one around to hear them don't make any sound. If this sounds doubtful to you, you should read John Locke and his theory of primary and secondary qualities. These ideas can be traced back two and a half thousand years to Plato and his allegory of the cave. The film The Matrix is a modern twist on the same idea. If this stuff interests you, for a good introduction and overview of some of these philosophical concepts, I'd recommend the podcast Philosophize This. So, we know that in one sense, none of our experiences are real, in that they are all generated by our brain, as a projection of useful information about the world around us, that it decides to present to us. We can never see or feel an actual table. We only experience the image or feel of a table presented to us by our brains. The flip side to this is that all our experiences are real in that we experience them. If we see a table, we've experienced the image of a table. We can never be said to have not seen it. The experience of seeing the table was a real experience. Likewise, pain is an experience, and there is no such thing as pain outside of this experience. Pain does not exist in the world. It only exists as our personal experience of it. In this sense, all pain is in the head. It also means that there's no such thing as imaginary pain. It is impossible to experience pain that is not real. If we have pain, we have pain. If we try to imagine being in pain, this is not the same thing as feeling pain. Although, if we imagine for long enough or hard enough, we might feel pain, because the brain is a powerful thing. But if this were to happen, we would no longer be imagining it. We would be experiencing it for real, and we would genuinely be in pain. If you cut your finger with a knife, the pain is not in the knife, and it's not in the cut, or in the finger. It is generated in the brain as a response to a message sent from nerve fibres in the finger, and the brain's interpretation of the meaning of this message 
and the surrounding context. The pain itself is produced by the brain. It is a mind experience. This means that it is possible to experience real pain in a part of the body, even if there is no injury or insult to that part of the body. Just like my cold coffee tasted like poison, even though it was perfectly safe. There are lots of examples of the brain producing pain without a physical stimulus in the tissues of the body. The classic example is that of a phantom limb, where people can experience pain in the toe even after their leg has been amputated. Scientists have conducted fascinating pain experiments where people are made to feel pain in artificial limbs and even in other people's limbs. At risk of labouring the point, I want to try to clarify this further with an analogy. I apologise if you're already with me and I'm over-egging the pudding, but I think this can be a slightly tricky concept. Think of the human experience, a colour or smell or a pain, as the experience of listening to Mozart's clarinet concerto. In order to hear the concerto, in order for it to exist, Mozart first has to write it. For our analogy, in terms of a colour, this may be the existence of a blue object in the world. For a pain, it might equate to damage to the tissues, let's say a pin pricking a finger. However, Mozart thinking up the piece is not the same as the music itself. It's just in his head, and no one else can hear it. He must first write it down, and so he writes the score. The score might be analogous to light bouncing off a blue object and landing in the eye. In the dark, a blue object is not blue. In terms of pain, it might represent activation of pain nerves, sending signals into the brain. But even this score is not the same thing as the music. Although it may be said to in some way contain the music, or has the potential to become the music, it is not itself the music. For the music to exist, you not only need the score, but you need a bunch of musicians with a bunch of instruments to play it. In our analogy, these are neural networks, and the orchestra is the brain. The musicians must interpret or decipher the score to produce the music. In one sense, ultimately the music is not created by Mozart or by the score. It is produced by the musicians. Without the musicians, the music doesn't exist at all. And the experience will be different depending on the way the score is processed and represented. If it is played on a trombone, it will sound quite different than if someone plays it on a flute. Neither is wrong or a misrepresentation. It's simply different ways of processing the signal to produce a different experience. Although the music could not have existed without Mozart, because he wrote it down, it can continue to be played long after he has died. Moreover, if all the musicians have learnt the piece off by heart, they may be able to play the piece even if all the copies of the score were lost in a fire. The experience of hearing the symphony is no less real, no less intense or legitimate, regardless of whether Mozart himself is conducting or the musicians have copies of the score.
I think that's enough for this episode. This stuff can be confusing and hard to follow. Let's take a break. But your homework this week is to go and check out the various visual illusions and experiments and think about how your perception of the world is a construct of your brain. Next time, we will move forward and think about what this means when it comes to understanding chronic pain and how understanding these concepts can help us to find new ways of addressing and treating pain. Thank you.